I, there's one name in here, and it's a name I've got to say multiple times because he's part of the story. Um, it, it's Kidorla Omer, but that doesn't sound right. It doesn't, I didn't, no matter how many times I practiced this this week, and so I'm going to call him Kidor um, today just so I can get through this and just wanted to prepare you for my butchering of his name. This is God's Word, and He's given us some great things in here, um, the, the least significant of which are difficult names to pronounce. He's given us His Word to instruct us and to point us to Christ. Let's read it now, beginning in chapter 14 and verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and the Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim, and in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Ser, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Kedor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the, king, the, Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Adner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. I pray now that you would take it and work it deep into our hearts, that we would see your great glory and your love for us and how you work according to your plan, good things for your people. And may we love you and trust you more as a result. Show us Jesus today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we looked at Abram the peacemaker, and today we see Abram the wise. It's almost uh, as if he's portrayed here in a kingly light, as a, a king or a ruler over this region that God has given him. He's not really possessed at all. He's still living as a nomad in this land. Last week, he brought peace between not just he and Lot. By giving Lot deference and letting him choose the land, he brought peace to those who were really having the conflict. That was the employees, the the herdsmen who were caring for the sheep. And in turn, that brought peace also to that region because the Canaanites were there living and living off the same land. It was an act of grace. It was a sign of God's true wisdom that he had given Abram. In our culture and time, worldly wisdom is typically indicated by impact or progress. You're considered wise if you get things done, if you make an impact. If you have financial success, people can think that you're wise. If you have charisma, people skills, and can use them and get people to do things, some people consider you wise. If you're a type A personality, can multitask and keep things moving with great results, it can be interpreted as wisdom. And I wouldn't argue that these aren't signs of wisdom. I'm not calling them foolishness. I'm just saying that they're not indicators necessarily of godly wisdom. When David was selected as the king of Israel, you remember that story. He wasn't even in consideration. He wasn't not, it wasn't that he wasn't a first-round draft pick. I mean, he wasn't even in the pick. He was a walk-on, right? I mean, he was out in the fields. And what did the Lord say to Samuel? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, speaking of the previous brother, for the Lord does not for the Lord sees, not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There are many things that are reflected in biblical wisdom, and we saw some of these last week when we considered Abram's work of peacemaking, and we looked particularly at James three seventeen. I'd like to reread that. It says, But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is a harvest of righteousness? Abram was considered righteous because he trusted God. When we act as peacemakers, people trust God. But notice the the descriptions of wisdom. Wisdom is pure. Wisdom is peaceable, 
Wisdom makes peace. It brings peace. Wisdom is gentle. As we go through this, consider the world's estimation of wisdom. Who does the world hold up to us as those that we should look and emulate? Are they gentle? Are they open to reason? Biblical wisdom is full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. And of course, there's this harvest of righteousness. If I could sum all of those things up into one word, I would sum it up in the word grace. When we act this way, we are gracious. And that's exactly what we see in Abram's actions. Now, we can't misunderstand grace to think of it as weakness. I think sometimes we do think that. This is an account, today's story. Now, I realize the story is a little hard to follow with all of those names. Because the minute that you read it, you're looking back at how you mispronounced it, and you're missing the next five words, even if you're the one reading it. So I realize we're going we're gonna to look back at the story, but, but you, you get what Abram did, right? I mean, it was a gracious thing that he went and rescued his nephew Lot, but how did he do it? He did it with a sword. He took up arms to rescue his nephew. And of course, we don't have to look any further than the cross of Christ, the greatest act of grace ever given to us where Jesus secured our salvation through the ravages of execution on the cross. Godly grace accomplishes God's purposes in God's way. Jesus humbled himself, taking on the role of a servant, laying down his life for us. And I think we could say in a similar way that godly wisdom accomplishes God's purposes in God's way. Humility, serving, laying down our lives as we emulate Christ. And Abram certainly sets that example for us today. We can look at Abram and we can see how he responded both in rescuing Lot, but also in giving honor to Melchizedek. But all of this is really serving a greater purpose that I don't want us to miss. I mean, this whole thing with Melchizedek, he's a blip on the radar screen. This is it. Until the writer of Hebrews gives us some explanation about it. What is this all about? It is all designed to point us to Christ who is our great King of peace and King of righteousness. And so let's look now at our text today. The first 12 verses of Genesis 14 describe this international conflict. This is, this is World War Zero. I mean, this is like the first great world war that we can experience in, in terms of the known world or, or be aware of in terms of the known world at that time. Four kings from the east. This was the region from all the way north in the Black Sea down to the Persian Gulf. They rally together to make war. And they're led by this king, Kedo. Um, again, yeah, uh, you know, Kedor, Kedo, I don't know what the best nickname is for him. But you get who I'm talking about. And they rally together, band together, and they, they rush through this land. Just by, they're just, this is just a powerhouse of force. And they are squashing this rebellion. Now, These people were subservient to him for 12 years, and it says in the 13th year that they rebelled. Probably they were paying him a tribute, a tax. And they decided, no more taxes. And how did that work out for them? Well, here he comes with these other kings, and he squashes them to bring them back into submission. Well, this is happening just over to the east, and so it doesn't take long for the news to travel to Canaan. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, these other kings, hear about this, and they, desire, they decide they're not going to wait 
for Kedor to show up on their doorstep. They're going to go out and engage him in battle. And verse 9 tells us, five kings of Canaan against the four kings of the east. Now, we're not given numbers until a little bit later. There's only one number we're given, and that's the number that went with Abram. So we don't know the size, but just from the size of the regions these kings represent alone, this is a David and Goliath kind of uh, you know, episode. These, these guys would not have had the armies in the size that the, the, the kings of the east, even though it was five against four. And as you might imagine, they are no match for the kings of the east, and they are routed. The defeat was so great that these kings fled, and some of them die by falling into these pits of what's called bitumen. It's tar or asphalt that line what is today the great the, the Dead Sea in that area. The Hebrew actually reads, it, it repeats the word pit twice. So it says pits, pits, tar. And, and the, the point of this is to say they were everywhere. And so in this you know, rush to flee, you know, you're literally running for your life. They were falling into these pits, and some of the kings perished as well. Those who didn't ended up running off into the hill country. And the result of this great defeat then is is described in verses 11 and 12. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. And so the king, the enemy, these Kedor and these guys, they take everything, all the possessions, everything, and they also take Lot. So the texts note that where Lot is at this point. If you remember where he was the last time, so he takes the land, the greener pastures that he wanted, and it says that he went and lived on the edge of Sodom. We talk about how the use of the word east in Genesis is, is, is pointing us usually to evil, to, to, to wrongdoing. And so there's this indication that he's moving in this eastward region. Sodom was already known for its wickedness. And so there's this, we talked about frog in the kettle. You know, he's, he's living too close for comfort, really, to the wicked people there in Sodom. But by the time we get to chapter 14, he's not on the edge of Sodom. He's living in Sodom. And so, again, this contrast that we see between the life of Abram and the life of Lot, where he continues his downward spiral and foolishness. Now, one could argue that Lot, because of that, got what he deserved. He he just reaped what he sowed. This is what you get. You play with fire, you're going to get burned. And some of us might be tempted to respond to Lot in that way. But look at what Abram does. Abram comes and, and, and responds in grace. He's guided by wisdom and he shows grace by going after Lot. Verse 13 tells us that one of the kings who had escaped came back to Abram and told him that Lot had been captured. And it also notes that Abram had some allies that he had allied himself with in the same region. And so when he hears of this, he takes action. Verse 14, he's responding to what Moses writes as his kinsman. This is how Abram looked at Lot. Not as his lesser nephew, the younger guy that that, uh, was to be looked down upon. We saw this before. He treated him as his brother when he said, "'You pick the land that you want.'" And now he's responding, you know, my brother's been captured. I'm going to go after him. And so Abram gathers his trained men. And here we have the number 318. Now, again, we're not given the other numbers, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here. And I don't do this very often. When Scripture doesn't say something, I just, you know, we, it's good to leave it alone, not guess. But I'm going to just go ahead and guess that this was a pretty small army compared to the kings of the east. 
When you look at the size of the region and and what they accomplished in the squashing of this rebellion against these other kingdoms, I don't think Abram, Abram had more men on his force. In verse 15, it describes to us his tactics. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And so we see Abram's not only proving to be wise in a businessman sense of demonstrated by the great wealth that he had, but God had also granted him great wisdom militarily to defeat this incredible force that had ravaged the land. And so by God's grace then, Abram returns with Lot all the possessions and all the people. He gets them all back. There's really no human explanation for this. Now, it doesn't jump off the pages that way because, again, we're not given all the numbers, but this was clearly the hand of God doing a saving work and simply using Abram to accomplish this task. I mean, the whole... Moses, as he wrote this, he spent seven verses of the chapter just describing the immense size of these kings and their kingdoms and what they were doing as a great force to move through the region to take it to then bring everything up to this point to say, God did this. God saved Abram. God saved Lot. And so upon his return home we see yet again another contrast. As we've gone through Genesis, we've seen contrast after contrast that Moses uh, describes for us. Here, the contrasts are between the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. Both kings come out to meet Abram. The king of Sodom, most likely this was the successor. The king of Sodom was probably one of the ones who died in the pit. Uh, And so this is the one who followed him. He comes out and uh, the king of Salem... This is, just, this is the city that we call Jerusalem. This is the precursor to it. It went by Salem, which means peace. And this king is the name Melchizedek, which if you've read the Bible much, you know the name. It gets repeated. It gets repeated in the Psalms. It gets repeated in Hebrews. But there's not a lot of great detail that's given in terms of the narrative historically of this account other than what we're reading today. He is described also not only as a king, but as a priest of El Elyon, God Most High. And these two kings come out with very different, contrasting motives. Melchizedek comes out, he brings bread and wine to nourish these soldiers who were exhausted from battle and to pronounce a blessing on Abram. While the king of Sodom comes out and demands a return of his people, uh, and then it almost comes across like a bribe with this offer of, but you keep the possessions. The blessing of Melchizedek upon Abram is this God-honoring tribute. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And in return, Abram gives him a tithe or a tenth of everything. Now, this is all before the Levitical priesthood, the law, the whole system that we get Uh, the priestly role, the idea of tithing and so forth from. This is all preceding that. And so what is unique about Melchizedek and what sets him apart? It's helpful for us to go to Hebrews and read what the author there tells us uh, about Melchizedek because all of this is designed to point us to Christ. In Hebrews 7, we read, beginning in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, a part of everything. He is, the, he is first 
by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. And then he is also the king of Salem, which means peace. So he's the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So I want us to look at some of the things and how they point us to Christ. First, Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Jesus also held both of those offices. His name means king of righteousness, and he was the king of Salem, which means peace. Jesus is our true king of righteousness and king of peace. Melchizedek's priesthood was not based on heredity, but on office. Just as Jesus, who was not born in the line of Levi, the Levitical priesthood line, but was born in the line of Judah. Melchizedek's line is not mentioned with a successor. This was a big deal in the line of Levi. There had to be a successor. There is not one for Melchizedek. And this points us to the eternal priesthood of Jesus, who perpetually serves as our priest, having died once and for all. And finally, Melchizedek is honored in the priestly role. Abram gives him a tithe of everything. Even though Abram had up until this point and after functioned as a priest himself by offering his own offerings for he and his family. But here he honors Melchizedek and points us to Christ that he is superior as our great high priest. And so when we see Melchizedek mentioned in both the Psalms and in Hebrews, The point isn't to make a big deal about Melchizedek. The point is to point us to Christ. Well, in turn, Abram doesn't take any of the spoils either. He uh, refuses the offer of the king of Sodom and says to him, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. We don't really get the emphasis here. But Abram's making a point. The thread or the sandal strap, I mean, this is, he's, he, he's making it crystal clear. I don't want anything. He could have rightfully done so. I mean, he's the one who went into battle. He's the one who risked his neck, but he lets it all go, just like he did the week before, what we, the week before, what we saw last week in the chapter before in, uh, in Genesis 13. Once again, as we saw last week, the word magnanimous with Abram, we see that again displayed that God might be glorified in this magnanimous grace. Abram worked to accomplish God's purpose in God's way, being truly wise. Now again, this passage is not designed to point us to the great rescue or the the, the military tactics or the generous giving of what Abram had secured and giving it up and not taking it for himself uh, from the kings of the east. This account instead points us to the saving hand of God, who works out His eternal love in doing for His people, saving His people for Himself, pointing us to the true King of righteousness and the true King of peace. If we go back to Hebrews 7 and we look in verse 15, this is what it says. This becomes even more evident, speaking of Christ, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. That's quoting the psalm there. 
For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever." This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is what it's all about. Pointing us to Christ, the guarantor of the better covenant. Just as Melchizedek set before Abram and his men the bread and wine, Jesus sets before us in the Lord's table His body and His blood. As the true conqueror who has defeated our enemy of sin and death, In His death and resurrection, He did once and for all do what all other sacrifices point to by dealing with the judgment that should have fallen upon us. The battle then is the Lord's. And guess what? He's won. He's won. So come to the table this morning and receive from our great high priest who is interceding for us this spiritual nourishment for all who are weary. Come believing that Jesus is enough, that He has paid what we cannot pay, that His work is finished. He said it all when He died. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, may we see Christ this morning lifted up and exalted as our true King of righteousness, as our true King of peace, knowing that He conquered sin and death and the evil one for us, and now reigns at your right hand, and is a perpetual priest for us, interceding for us, doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for this. Lord, I pray that you would draw our eyes to Jesus today, not just for this moment of worship, but for the invigorating strength that would then carry us out to face what is just around the corner for all of us. Whatever that is, more difficulty, more stress, more suffering, uh, more things of uh, just the unknown. Lord, would you cause us to face these things not with fear and anxiety, but with a deep sense of rest and peace because we've seen what you do, that you are the conqueror, that you are the true king of righteousness and peace, and that you provide for us a peace that passes all understanding, and that you guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We pray this today in the name of Jesus. Amen.